Good morning and greetings to each of you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see each and every one of you here, both those regulars and those visiting from out of town. We welcome you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every now and again, I remember a saying they used to say in South Africa when I was there a long time ago. And you can turn with me to John 4 while we kind of catch up to the same place. When the speaker would come up and greet the folks in the name of the Lord Jesus, they would often say, it's good to be here. And of course, they're in a very bilingual society like our own. And so uh, when the speaker would say it in English, they would respond in Kosa and say, Kumnandi Ukubalapa, which means the same thing. It's good to be here. And so they would trade greetings in the name of the Savior. Well, I hope that you can agree that it's good to be here this morning, to be in the presence of the Lord, the one who loves us. And loved us enough to send His only begotten Son to save us from our own destruction. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And for those of you who are visiting, we have been... Uh, We've begun a journey going through the Gospel of John. And, and, and there are four books in the New Testament that go through the life of Christ. And only two of them are written by, uh, uh, well, two of the twelve disciples. Uh, the other two were close associates of theirs. Uh, well, Mark of Peter and Luke of the Apostle Paul. And, and they had eyewitness accounts relayed to them so often they recorded it as historians. But John was one of the eyewitnesses. And, and the neat thing about going through this book is that we get very private, personal conversations. We kind of get brought with a backstage pass to see some of the things that happened in the life of Christ that the other writers don't tell us about. And, and uh, this is one of those scenes where we're going to see our Savior in a private conversation um, with an individual that totally changed their lives, their eternity. Their worlds were turned upside down. And you know, that's really what happens when someone meets Christ, right? Is their crossroad moments. And uh, I pray that if one of you are at one of those crossroad moments today, that you will choose the path of Christ. You know, there's a song we used to sing when I was a kid. I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two roads meet. Satan too was standing there and, and said to me, Lots and lots of pleasures I can give to you today. But I said no, because Jesus is here. And see what He offers me? Down here, my sin's forgiven. And up there, a home in heaven. Praise God, that's the way for me. And I was just a little child, probably before I heard that song, that I realized I was at a crossroads. And I knew that I was a sinner who needed Jesus to save me. And I put my trust in Him, and it's changed my life. And I've had my ups, I've had my downs, but I'm thankful that I'm on the road with Jesus. And I know that He has guaranteed safe passage all the way to heaven. And uh, that's why we're here to celebrate Him this morning. The title of today's message, The Savior of the World, comes from the passage itself. The people who meet Jesus recognize Him to be the Savior of the world. And that's exciting because, you know, so much of what was happening in Jesus' life was He was spending time sharing the message of God, the love of God with the Jewish people. Because as Jesus will say to the woman in our passage today, salvation is of the Jews. It was promised to come through the Jews, but be a blessing to the world. And this is where we see Jesus proving that point. He goes to a woman, not a Jew, but offers her the same forgiveness and everlasting life that he offers to everyone who will come to him. And um, that's what we're going to look at today 
in John chapter 4. If I could just uh, uh, take a moment, we're going to open in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll get back to our passage. Father, we want to thank you today for bringing us to a place where we can open your word freely to consider what you have to say to us but through what you said to uh, this woman 2,000 years ago. The living water that her heart craved, you abundantly supplied, not only to her, but to all who call upon the name of our Savior, Lord Jesus. We, we thank you for bringing us together today, Lord. We realize that the conversation in, in our story today was not an accident, but was orchestrated by yourself. And we are confident that none of us are here today by accident, but you have something to say to each of us. And I just want to ask, Lord, that you would help quiet our hearts of all the distractions and worries and concerns of the rest of our life. And while we're here in your presence, would you just open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to draw near to you, to let you speak to our hearts, to reveal to us any truth that you have to say about ourselves, about you, about the world that we live in, whatever it may be, that you may have your way in our hearts. And I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here who's at one of those crossroads, that today they would reach for you, for you have been reaching for them. We commit this time to you and ask that all things be to the honor and glory of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Before we actually read our text, I want to just tell you the story of one other man. There was a man in London in the 1500s, and um, he had been a student of the word. He was in full-time ministry, and in the days of King Henry VIII, he actually rose to become the chaplain to the king. And part of the reason this was significant is because Henry was the one who decided that they were no longer going to walk hand in hand with the Catholic Church, but they needed to separate. And this was a very big deal. You think Brexit is a big deal today, right? Well, the church in that day controlled the rule of nations, not just the church. And so the English people realized that this control was not proper, and so they broke away from the Catholic Church and established the Church of England. And so... Uh, Hugh Latimer was the man who would walk King Henry through some of those changes. But Henry was a little bit fearful to make all the changes that he was hearing about from the Word of God. And after his life was over, King Edward came to the throne. And he was determined that to take the Church of England further into biblical practice. And so uh, we began to see in that country changes that were being influenced by the Word of God. And uh, 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 Hugh Latimer's position changed to be a little bit more broad. I can't remember exactly what the title was. I forgot to write it down. Uh, but then something very drastic happened. Edward's reign came to an end and Queen Mary came to the throne. Her reign was short, but she earned the title Bloody Mary because she killed over 3,000 people. Many of them burned at the stake or strangled. And uh, the thing that marked those deaths was not like other kings hadn't done that, but the, the character of the people that she was putting to death were men like Hugh Latimer, who were known to be men of godly character, but they disagreed with her and her position. She wanted to take England back to the Catholic Church, and she found all the people who opposed her, and she, she drastically removed them. But the reason I bring you this man is because during the, the a part of his earlier days as a preacher, there was a man named Thomas Bilney who came to hear him. Now, Thomas Bilney had also been a student of the word, and he was frustrated that his religion was, was leaving him empty, although he was seeking God. And one day, he heard a man preach by the name of Erasmus, 
and he realized that this man had a secret that he did not. And so he heard that, that, that Erasmus had written a translation of the New Testament in Latin, and so Bilney went out and he got himself a copy of the New Testament, and privately he began reading it. He confessed that he was more intrigued with the Latin than what he was hearing at first from the Word of God. But as he was reading, he found himself in a verse which I believe is quite notable to many of us here. And in fact, we put it on our chapel stationery when we send letters. It's 1 Timothy 1.15. And this was the verse that brought Bilney to a crossroads. And he realized, this verse says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And here was Bilney, a very unknown follower of Christ, attempting to be in his own strength, but finding himself failing, very discouraged, very empty in heart. But when he read this verse, he realized here is a trustworthy saying deserving of being accepted. Jesus came to save not righteous people, but sinners. And here was the Apostle Paul that he had heard about and somewhat read about, but he hadn't done much reading of the Bible before this. But he realized Jesus came to save me. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. I'm a sinner. And that day changed Bilney's life. And it was one day while Bilney was hearing Hugh Latimer preached. He said, here's a man that I respect. Here's a man who is bold to speak to the evils of our day. He's seeking the Lord. But he said, just like uh, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila, who had to take Apollos aside to, to show him more accurately the word of God, he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, would you please help me to win this man's soul for you so that he can discover what you have shown me? And this verse, 1 Timothy 1.15, was his message day by day. And one day he sat under Erasmus another time. And when Erasmus was coming down after speaking his message, he didn't know what to say to him. He didn't. And suddenly he had an idea. He said, "Uh, uh, uh, my brother, will you please allow me to confess to you today? And so he, Latimer, took him into a little confessional there in the church that day. And Bilney began to tell him his overwhelming sinfulness and shame that led him to Christ. And he quoted this verse to him, how he found forgiveness of sins when he put his trust in the Lord Jesus who came to save sinners. And much to the joy of Bilney, Hugh Latimer climbed out of his side of the confessional and knelt down beside Thomas Bilney and poured out his heart to the Lord and began weeping to finally find the grace of Christ, the Savior of the world. This is the man that became the chaplain. This is the man who in 1555 along with Nicholas Ridley, was strapped to a post. There's the verse. They're in Oxford, and they were both lit on fire as they burned alive for the Lord Jesus Christ that day. But there's something that Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and said that day. He said, my brother, take courage. For we shall this day light a candle in England as I trust shall never be extinguished. And that's what happened. Their testimony for Christ. People who met Jesus at the crossroads, seeing themselves as a simple sinner needing the grace of Christ. He changed not only their lives, but those whose lives were touched by their influence. Maybe you're here today 
and you wonder what purpose your life has. You wonder what impact your life can have. Maybe you or me, maybe we'll just be like Thomas Bilney, not known by many, but someone whose life will be touched by ours will become the next Hugh Latimer or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham. Or perhaps that is you. And Christ is waiting to meet you at the crossroads, to take you down the path of life as the Savior of the world, the one who gave himself for sinners like you and like me. Well, you know, that's where we find our Savior today. In John chapter 3, Jesus came to a religious man, a man who had given his life like Hugh Latimer to teaching the word of God, but did not understand the salvation of Christ. And so in a private conversation in John chapter 3, the Lord showed him that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we don't know exactly at what point, but eventually Nicodemus would put his trust in Christ. But today, we're going to see another situation, much in contrast to the details of what we learned about in Nicodemus, but the message will be the same. And so why don't we come to John chapter 4. We're going to read our passage together. Um, there's so much more to this passage and we will be able to cover today. Um, but there, we hope in the will of the Lord to, to elaborate a little bit more on some of the themes that will be brought out from this passage in John chapter 4. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. Again, we just ask you to guide us by your Holy Spirit and speak to our hearts today in Jesus name. Amen. So the Savior, we're told in chapter 4 that he begins to travel. Now, I like maps. So <clears throat> I want to just kind of give you a, a, a visual on where Jesus is at in this part of his, his journey, right? It says that at this point, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he made more disciples than John did, that he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you're familiar with the maps, right, this is the whole country of Israel with the cities in location as they would have been in Jesus' day. Now, from top to bottom, we're talking about a hundred or so miles. I'm told that's about the size of New Jersey. So it, it, it takes quite a bit. They didn't have trains and cars, right? So it took, it took quite a bit of a journey to get back and forth. And there were several uh, uh, feasts where they were supposed to travel down to Jerusalem, here to the capital, to come to the temple. Uh, and, and so many of the Israelites were used to traveling up and down because if they were faithful, they made this journey many times in their lifetime. Now, Jesus had been here in Judea. That's the region down here near Jerusalem. And this is where John the Baptist had been baptizing near the Jordan River. And at this point, Jesus had begun to preach the kingdom of God, and it says that they were dis baptizing disciples who were beginning to follow Jesus. And I believe we already saw in chapter 2 that John had already been arrested, 
So he was no longer preaching out here, but Jesus continued in the Judean area preaching, continuing the message that John had begun. John was preparing the way for Jesus' coming. Now, it says at this point, and here's one of the things I wanted to note about our Savior in this case, is that he is very intentional. Right? It says that he began at this point to go back up into Galilee. That's the area up here next to the Sea of Galilee, this whole region. And that's where his home was, but he had been down here preaching. It says he went back. Now, he didn't go back because he was afraid of the Pharisees. He said many times, my time has not come yet. They couldn't do anything to him. The Father would protect him. But he did decide to go back. And it leaves us to ask the question, why? Now, it appears that uh, uh, he did not want to stir up all the controversy that later would be stirred up over his ministry, but it, he was aware that they knew. And so, understanding the times, he made a decision. And you know, this is something that I want us to see in the, the ministry of our Savior, is that he is very intentional. And what he did, it says he went from Judea up to Galilee, but he must go through Samaria. That's the area here in the middle. Now, we learn later that the Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans. Now, some of us already know, some of us may be new to this, right? But during the Old Testament, when the Israelites had wandered far away from God, God allowed other nations to come take them captive and take them out of the nation of Israel. And when that happened in 722 B.C., Assyria took all the people from the, from the, the northern kingdom and carted many of them off to Assyria, and then they took a bunch of their own people and sent them back to live in this area of Samaria. And, and, and I think their, their thinking was, hey, listen, if they intermarry, they become part of us, and so they won't attack us and try to leave us. They'll just be loyal subjects as we expand the kingdom by marriages and family. But as a result, when the southern kingdom finally came back from their own days of captivity, they were seeking to be loyal to the word of God, and God had told them not to intermarry with those who were not believers in the, in the, in the God of the Bible. And so these people were seen as unfaithful followers of the Lord and had departed from the faith. And so many of the Jews would actually, instead of going up here, long the journey was, especially the people from Judea, they would actually cross the river and come up the other side and just avoid the area altogether. Don't even want to deal with them. Longer trip. Less convenient, but serve their own purposes. But our Savior had other purposes. And that is what draws us to him, right? He knew that this woman in the city of Sychar was as dry and thirsty in her heart as Hugh Latimer was, as you or I was, before we came to Christ. And she needed the Savior and the Lord knew that. And so he intentionally decided to make his way through Samaria up to Galilee. And so we find him coming to the city of Sychar near this well that Jacob had given to his son Joseph hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. And so that's one of the things we learn about our Savior is that he is very intentional. And I would, I don't know any particulars of what may be going on in your heart today, but I would just say this. If there's something stirring in your heart, maybe it's the same emptiness that we've been talking about. The Lord has been very intentional at working in your life, whether to bring you to hear, whether to help you to hear the word of God. He is seeking you just like he was seeking this woman. And so I encourage you to listen to him today.
But also I see a reminder that our Savior is not just the Son of God, 100% deity, but we learn here he is 100% human. It says that in his travels down there from Judea up to Galilee, we see that he is weary from his travels. Note verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. And it's the sixth hour. We're talking noonish. So it's only been a half day's journey. Don't know how long he's been traveling, where he had been before this, but he was weary from his travels and sat down by the well. You know, I'm encouraged by this reminder because we learn in the scriptures, right, that after Jesus raised from the dead and he went back to heaven, he has taken a ministry as our high priest. That means that he goes before the Father to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf. And as our high priest, he's supposed to be looking out for our interests in those prayers. And if he did not understand what it was to be weary, if he didn't understand what it was to be discouraged, if he didn't understand what it was like to be despised and rejected, could he really know how to draw near to us when we're feeling these ways? But time and again, we're reminded, listen, the Savior understands here we see a little reminder of his humanity he was human and all the regular human things that we deal with he had to deal with but thankfully not because of any of his own sin like sometimes our problem is but simply by being human he can understand the temptations the struggles the battles that we face every day um So, by the way, the things I'm listing here, I thought to myself, you know, Hebrews tells us that as we seek to run the race of our own lives, it's a long, it's a long distance run. He tells us that it's important for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so that keeping our eyes fixed on him can encourage us because he he suffered more than we ever will. And he really does understand it. And, And so I hope that as we gain some insight into the character, the person, the motives, the heart of the Savior that that we will be closer drawn to Him and better able to follow Him. I also see this. He sits down by the well. It's about noontime, the sixth hour. And it says, verse 7, a woman of Samaria comes to draw water and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. It's not His well. It's not His town. He's the visitor here. But He takes the initiative. And... uh I appreciate that too, right? The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's not the shepherd who finds out that there's a sheep missing, says, well, he'll come back eventually. No, the Bible says he'll leave the 99 safely in the pen and go after to seek the one that was lost. He takes the initiative. And today, again, I would just remind you that he is seeking us. If there's some way you're feeling disconnected from the Savior, he is seeking to initiate the contact once again. And uh, this is not easy. You know, sometimes we offend one another. Sometimes we don't get along. And, and we may even blame the other person. Well, it's their fault. Well, the Bible says if you know that someone has something against you, go to them. Or if uh, you know that you've done something that has hurt the other person, you go to them. He calls on us to initiate these things. 
He calls on us to initiate the conversations with the lost around us like he did. And sometimes we want to wait for them to show how thirsty they are for Christ. But he was the one to initiate the conversation. So he engages this woman. And, and I'm challenged by this too. You know, And here's a question that I hope we can talk about more tonight in specifics, right? But she is surprised by his response. And she says to him, why is it that you, being a Jew, are asking me for a drink? There seems to be something... <clears throat> There were established cultural mindsets of Jesus' day that he was aware of. She was aware of. And yet he was willing to counteract those, to totally go against them. And I have to ask myself, you know, there are certain mindsets in our day about things that are considered appropriate and inappropriate to say or to do. Where is the point where God is calling us to cross that cultural line, to say, to initiate and say what needs to be said. I don't know that we can dictate that to one another in many of our circumstances. The details of each of our daily lives um, are different, and the dynamic of those relationships is different, but our Savior gave us an example here. He knew very well that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, But he reached out anyway because he saw her need. And I I would just uh, uh, suggest that it's really worth considering in our day where that line ought to be crossed. Because it's not just about offending or unsettling people. It's about reaching them for the Savior. And that was more important to him than shaking up things. His disciples were disturbed by it. Why is he talking to her? And, you know, there there are situations, there are people who um, who are making some very hard decisions, right? We hear about bakers and photographers who are being asked to participate in events for people who have taken cultural stands and traditions that violate what we see in the Word of God. And they have to make a decision. Do we go along with those cultural mindsets or do we have to refrain from that and it's upsetting some people but understanding the need for the lost to find the savior requires that we wrestle with this question and we will stand not before one another for the decisions that we make but before the lord right and 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 i know some people who've chosen to refrain from those events, others who have chosen to say, you know what? I feel like God wants me to share with them the love of Christ the way that Jesus did this woman. They will have to answer to the Lord for that. We will have to answer to the Lord for the decisions that we make. But we can't escape the question. We have to make some decisions. And I hope we can talk more about that when we come together this evening to speak more specifically if there's events going on in our own lives. But the Lord initiated this conversation and he was definitely countercultural in engaging this woman. And uh, it shook things up. And so she was, uh, she was uh, uh, reactionary, right? I think that we see a little bit of a sarcastic tone. She's not sure how to take what he says to her. He, he asks for a drink and um, 
He was alone, so the disciples weren't there to provide extra pressure on him or her. So this, this free dialogue begins. And in verse 9, she says, How is it that you can ask this of me? And um, Jesus completely turns it around. And I like this. He's very wise and engaging in the way that he, he deals with her. Uh, he's understanding of where she's coming from. And so rather than getting riled by her response, as she somewhat challenges him, he says, Listen, if you knew the gift of God, And who it was that was speaking to you, asking for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He'd have given you something even more special than the water he was asking you for. Now, here's the wisdom that I see the Lord using here, right? In many situations, he takes everyday situations not only to engage people in general, but to share the gospel with them. They're parables in life itself that he uses to bridge from the natural realm to the spiritual realm, right? And so he was thirsty. makes sense that he would ask for water. And I'm sure he wanted some water. But in the process, he could stop and say to her, hey, listen, there's something even more important and more precious than the water from this well. It's the living water that comes from God. It's the gift of God that springs up into everlasting life in your heart. And he wanted to make that bridge. Sometimes I don't even think of some of those bridges until after conversations are over, right? The people come and they knock on your door. They want to talk about your security system for your house or your insurance, you know? And sometimes it's not until after they're gone. I'm like, yeah, I should have asked them about whether they think they've even got a house in heaven. How secure do they think that house is? And, and or, or insurance, you know? who They're going to look out for my best interest. Well, I got someone who's looking out for my eternal interests, you know, and how to bridge the conversations of life to eternal things. The Lord was a master at this. He was very wise and engaging and in tune with their hearts and their lives. And so if we're going to do that, we've got to somehow be around people and know what's going on in their lives enough to ask and to engage them. But there is, the Lord is our example on how to engage people at the heart level and not just stay on the surface, right? And, uh, and so he knew what was going on in her heart. And so he knew that she was thirsty. And so it goes on. And uh, she's a little shocked by this. She's like, okay, look. Our father, our ancestor Jacob gave us this well. You think you're greater than him? You got something better to offer than, the, you know, we're in the desert here. This is a well. You know, you, what you, you must think what you've got is pretty good. Um, but Jesus says, yeah, you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But... This is a powerful verse, verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. There's a concept here about this living water that is deep. Since we're next to a well, that wasn't meant to be a pun, but it sure was one. Um, He said, in this world, you get thirsty in your body. But in your heart, there's a thirst that also needs quenching. And he said, that is a much more important concern. He says that this living water that I give will actually quench it, will actually satisfy it. He says, it will become in him, this living water, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Here was a woman 
who was still thinking water. She's like, Lord, yeah, yeah, okay, I don't want to thirst anymore. Give me this water so I don't have to come to this well. And Jesus has to stop again and say, listen, I'm not talking about this well anymore. I've moved on to the, to the, to the supernatural, spiritual realm within you. There is a thirst there that only God can satisfy. And uh, that's been put in so many different ways, a hole in our heart, uh, whatever it is. But I believe that this is a very biblical concept, and I see it in 1 Corinthians 6, because the Corinthians had newly come to Christ, and they still had a lot of trappings from a sinful life that they brought with them, and they were, some of them, still hanging on to some of these things. Some of them had departed, and, and so Paul was writing to them to help them through the journey. And he says something very interesting. One of the things that the people were using to try to fill up that, uh, 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 that to, to address the thirst in their heart, was, uh, in this case, sexual immorality. But, you know, we use all kinds of things in our day. It can be relationships. It can be food. It can be popularity. It can be status in society. It can be influence over others. Appearance. There's lots of ways that we try to, to quench the thirst that's in our heart with external material things. But here's what Paul would say. Now, he addresses the particular one they were struggling with. But as we read this, if you just think about your own life, here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Foods are for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God's going to destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality or all those other things that we mentioned, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. He says, listen, just take a look at your body. You've got a stomach. It gets... It gets hungry. And you probably do what I do. You go to the fridge sometimes, you open it up, and you're kind of lazy, and so you just grab whatever might be there. Or maybe it's not in the fridge, maybe it's in the cupboard, worse yet, because it's usually something very unhealthy then, right? You just grab it out of the cupboard, you eat it, and it seeks to fill that empty stomach, but when you're done, what do you do? You go walking around the kitchen looking for something else because you're really not satisfied with what you put in there. And God has designed our stomachs to be available for the food that he designed to go in it. And he designed food in such a way so that our bodies can digest it and process it. And the process works when the two come together in the right way, right? And he says, listen, that's the way God designed our bodies. That's just a picture of the way God designed our hearts for him. We were made to be in relationship with God. And from the time that sin entered the world, the Bible says that our sins separated us from God. And so now, the very vessel of our lives that was meant to receive the life of God flowing in and through us has been separated and we feel the emptiness or the thirst in our souls. And we try to fill it with all kinds of things and wonder why it doesn't work. When what he's saying is, listen, you were made for me. Open your heart to me and I'll fill it. So much so, he says, that it will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And he says, you'll never thirst again. Now, I remember there was a season in my life. I was at college. And um, I took a speech class. And to kind of get things rolling at the beginning of the semester, they had us interview each other and introduce each other to the rest of the class. And, and they're asking me about my life. And so they quickly found out I was a follower of Christ. I was active in my church. And uh, 
in introducing me, they mentioned some of these things to the class. Well, the following week, leaving the class, a woman came and stopped me. And she said, hey, 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 can I ask you a question? Are you one of those born-again Christians? Yeah. Uh, I didn't know where this was going. But she said, I can just tell. You just have such a peace about you. And I thought to myself, no, I had just been recently reading one of my journals. And my journaling seasons of life have gone like this. Uh, and and, and I, I dug one out to get started again. And I was so discouraged that week because I read about some of the things I was struggling with. And I said, man, I still struggle with these things. Am I not even growing? I was feeling discouraged. And so when she told me she saw peace in my life, I had to go home and think, what, what, what exactly is going on here? And here's what I realized. Having grown up and coming to Christ so early in my life and spending so many years of my life fixed on how do I draw closer to the Lord, seeing where I was falling short of that had discouraged me. I wanted to be further along. I felt like God wanted me to be further along. But when I started to look at what it was like for this woman, and I'm thinking, you know what? She's wrestling with questions like, why am I even here on earth? Is there a purpose to all this? Is there life after death? Is there really a heaven? Is there a hell? Does it make a difference? Do all roads lead to heaven? Is ever, as long as you're sincere, do all religions lead to God? These are vast, important, essential questions for life. And I said to myself, listen, of all those questions, I've settled all those. I know where I stand with God. I have a peace at the bottom of my life that I can't just forget about. This part about staying close to Christ is a small sliver of what the world is carrying and the burdens in their heart. And I'd forgotten that. That thirst has been satisfied in my heart a long time ago. I don't worry about that anymore. But there are people who do. And they don't know how to find the living water. Christ would like to meet them. We may be the one to introduce them. So we got to do our part. The Savior was doing His. But He knew the longings of her heart. And so He engaged her to point her to that living water. Something that's very interesting. I might forget to come back to it, so I want to mention it now. Do you remember what? There's seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. One of them was, I thirst. And for many years, I, I kind of looked at that as, okay, he's on the cross. His throat's probably parched. They've done a lot of brut brutalizing to him. He's thirsty, natural. But I think it's very probable that there's something more going on there. You see, for the very first time in all of eternity past, the Son of God, who was always in perfect harmony and relationship with the Heavenly Father, the Bible says... He was now having to pay for our sins and he was feeling the separation as he was suffering the wrath of our sin from his heavenly father. And how did it manifest itself to him? How did he sense that, 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 that bitterness of sin and the judgment on it 
as the Father judged our sin on Him on the cross with a thirst. A thirst that He never had before. And a thirst that we who know Christ as our Savior will never fully know. Because He said, if we will receive that everlasting life, it will well up within us as a fountain to to everlasting life and we'll never thirst again. Now, yes, if we're not walking close to Him, we'll feel some of the We'll feel some of the, 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 the quenching. We'll feel some of the limitations on the Spirit's presence in our lives. But we'll never be brought back to where we were. Because He seals us with that Spirit. He promises to bring us all the way to everlasting life in heaven. But the thirst, let's not forget the thirst that the world senses every day as they seek Him. Um, well, He says to her, you go call your husband and come here. Hmm. here's where he goes from just expressing the grace and love of God where he says, listen, there's something you need to know. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so he says, go call your husband. Oh, well, I don't have one. She had to own up to her fallenness. All the ways that she felt most ashamed of It seems like that's why she came at a very strange time of day all by herself to go to the well. She was feeling the rejection of people around her and in society. And she laid out her heart to the Lord. She said, I I don't have a husband to go get. But in owning 